Do you want to stop yelling and have your child listen to? Well, I have exciting news for you. If you're hearing this right now, it means that the doors to mindful parenting are open at mindfulparentingcourse.com. This only happens for a limited time, and it may be perfect for you if you want to be that patient, calm parent, but you're afraid of being walked all over, you're losing it, and you want to be that steady, peaceful parent, you don't have a cohesive method, and you take in bad advice like just count to one, two, three. Mindful parenting is an evidence-based system that not only teaches you how to calm your reactivity, but offers you a ton of personal guidance. A lot of other parenting coaches talk about the best way to respond to your child, but guess what? They don't walk you through the research-proven practices that it really takes to create changes that actually last. Mindful Parenting teaches you the specific steps to create cooperative, loving relationships for life. In Mindful Parenting, you can learn how to stay calm, even if you find yourself shouting hourly now. Be present for your child, no matter what they're going through. Resolve conflicts easily without yelling or taking away the iPad. Set limits without your child resenting you for days afterward. And build trust between you and your child so that you avoid misery in the teen years. The doors are open now at mindfulparentingcourse.com. Unlike other programs in Mindful Parenting, we offer one-on-one coaching to every member and weekly drop-in coaching sessions. Don't wait anymore. You and your kids are worth leveling up. Go to mindfulparentingcourse.com and join now before the doors close again. That's mindfulparentingcourse.com. I'll see you there. Hello, and welcome to the Mindful Mama podcast. Here, it's about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent. A mindful mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have. And when you are thriving, when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm your host, Hunter Clark Fields, Mindfulness Mama Mentor. I coach overstressed moms on how to cultivate self-awareness in their daily lives to take family and life to a new level of awakening. I've been practicing yoga and mindfulness for over 20 years, and I'm the creator of the Mindful Parenting Course. And I'm the mom of two girls, ages six and nine. So thank you so much for being here, my friend. I'm really excited for this episode you're about to listen to. Um, This is an episode about bringing um, play and open-ended play into your kid's life. I'm going to talk to Avital Schreiber. Hi, Hunter here, and welcome to Mindful Mama. I am so happy to have my guest today, Avital Schreiber. Levy. Levy? Levy? How do I say it, Avita? Levy, great. Okay. Avita is a childhood designer and mindful parenting coach, and she specializes in creating simplified environments and curating play things that are conducive to a deep, immersive, and healthy play. And she's advocates for self-directed learning approach and unschools her two young boys and baby girl most of the time. And you can find her on theparentingjunkie.com with weekly videos and articles. Um, so welcome to Mindful Mama podcast, Avital. Thanks, Hunter. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so glad you're here too. This is this is really great. So, you know, it's interesting because I was interested in talking to you because you come from this design background and I was an, you know, an artist and and we both kind of ended up in this like crazy parenting world. So I'm kind of wondering 
how did you happen to to end up doing the work that you're doing with the Parenting Junkie? Yeah, uh, yeah, I love that we have that in common. Um, so for me, it was really one of those things, you know, a lot of people talk about always wanting to be a mom and always knowing they want to work with children and or, or people who come from social work or psychology or backgrounds that somehow are related to relationships and children. Um, for me, it was the the complete opposite. I, I didn't want to be a mom and I <laughs> was not impressed with the whole parenting thing. It looked like all parents were always just so tired and so miserable and just trying to get their kids somewhere else other than with them, you know, and I was like, why would I do that to myself? Um, and I was in art school and I became a designer. Uh, graphics was my uh, kind of core um focus and um and then you know eventually it was kind of through some kind of philosophical decision more logical than anything else that I decided I do want children and I don't want to kind of die before experiencing that that very essential human experience of of being a parent um and once I had made that decision and became pregnant um it all shifted for me. Suddenly this became, you know, I kind of saw it as I might have seen any of my design projects, like, oh, how can I do this cohesively, coherently? How can this make sense for me? How can this um, be beautiful? Um, And, you know, that's kind of how, you know, parenting just got me in that place of of self-growth and self-expression. It was much, in a way, more about me than than about, you know, being the perfect parent for my kid. It was about for myself trying to decipher that experience. And, and I just became very, very passionate about it. Mm, That's interesting. It's so, so familiar, your story. And I, I really relate to what you're saying about this idea that parenting is about self-growth. And I think that is, um, I think it's a really healthy approach because, uh, really it so much depends on our own attitude, our own level of groundedness, our own level of self-care and things like that. And when that approach of like my kids come first and every, you know, that's actually not so healthy for kids anyway. So um, I think that's pretty cool. I, I like that approach that you have. Thanks. Yeah, I totally agree. I agree that when we put kids first, it's not good for anyone. I think it's a relationship and that yeah. means there's a give and a take, right? There has to be, or someone crashes. Yeah. Um Exactly. possibly both. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So it's interesting, I think, that you pursued um, homeschooling because that's something I looked into. So I was actually in I was in um, graduate school studying art education and I discovered we so we'd learned about different forms of education. And one thing I was interested in because I had a friend who was a homeschooled kid when like in the 80s when it was like really weird and unusual right Mm -hmm. and she was awesome and Mm -hmm. we did all these like awesome projects in her house and we like made candles and we had so much fun so Mm -hmm. I always had this great interest and I thought it was pretty neat and then I learned about unschooling which was a whole different thing and I learned about Montessori there which I'm really passionate about um Mm -hmm. but I remember feeling like Oh, you know, really learning about reading. Um, oh, who's the author about learning about the conventional school system and sort of the way the problems with it, really kind of getting mm-hmm. into that and being like, just feeling very, very passionate about it. Like, I'm going to do things differently yeah. with my kids. And I really entertain the idea of 
homeschooling. But for me, I knew I just like, I was like, it would be too much for me. It just would be too mm-hmm. too much for me mm-hmm. personally. So I'm just interested about your, the, how you went into that choice and, and that decision um, and, and how it may or may not be different from your own childhood. Mm. Yeah. So that's a ton of, um, <laughs> yeah, that's a lot of questions. Here's a um, ton of I... questions. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I could talk about this for hours, but, um, so first of all, I think I need to just say that it's not a choice that's set in stone for us by any means. Um, it happens to be because of my husband's career up until now, we've moved many times over the last few years since becoming parents. So we've had this kind of, on the one hand, uh, instability, which has been, you know, scary and, um, difficult and challenging. Uh, and on the other hand a freedom and a liberation. Like we don't have to make any long-term decisions because we're moving for, you know, he's a doctor, so he's done residency and fellowship and we move around for those things. And so it's been, um, I've taken that, I've tried for the most part to take that as a liberation to say, you know, I can take each year as it comes, whatever suits me, where we live and how we live right now. So I just want to say, you know, if you catch my kids in public school in three years, don't, you know, don't come (laughs) saying it. I I promise they'd be homeschooled forever. Um, But, Having said that, I'm I'm very passionate about deliberate education, and I don't think that that necessarily means home education. So I really relate to your story of you know being being really passionate about Montessori and and making that a big part of your child's education. I I and I know that this is a huge privilege, right? These are first world problems. I I just want to say that up front. You know, many children don't get you know don't get the privilege of any education. So. Uh, these are first world problems and most children are absolutely fine in whatever school they go to. So I never want anyone to feel shame or pressure uh, when it comes to these decisions. So this is just about my personal story and my personal passion. Um, But yeah, for me, I think uh, it's complicated. I don't, I feel like you that I, you know, I might go crazy if I stay at home with my kids all day, every day. Um, I need to do other things. I need to take care of myself, do yoga. Um, I need to do my work by myself in my room. I I have that introverted side of me that needs alone time as well. Um, And then on the other hand, I've been kind of cultivating a new way of looking at raising children and at education and at my life and at privacy and what that means for me Um, in an attempt to serve that type of alternative approach to to growing up. I grew up in a very mainstream environment. I grew up um, it, in regular schools. Um, most of them were private, but they were, you know, normal in the sense that there was subject matters, division by age and grading and testing and uh, you know, it was all compulsory, um, that, you know, just a normal, a very mainstream type of school environment. Um, and it was fine. Um, but I spent the vast majority of my time there drawing, uh, drawing through, through the classes. And I was told off a lot for that, you know, you're dawdling, you're drawing, you're, 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 you're sorry, doodling, in fact. Um, oh my God, I and... just have to interject here, Avital, because, I I drew through all my classes too. I have notebooks and notebooks from like fourth grade when my teacher like rambled on and on and on about fishing for some reason. And yet, yeah, like tons of notebooks just drawing all through class. Love that. <laughs> and then you go on to become an artist, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And 
Yeah. And for me, it was like, okay, but I was already doing what I needed to be doing. I was drawing that. Well, that is actually, when I look back, what serves me most in my career was those years <laughs> and years of drawing and drawing and drawing and drawing. Um, and, you know, it took reading Alfie Cohn and Ken Robinson and Peter Gray and all these wonderful authors about, you know, education to, to realize that that children have their own educational path embedded in them. They know what they need to learn. They're drawn to the things that interest their unique personality. And now more than ever in the history of the earth, we can we can really, really, really cater for that if we wanted to. Um, I mean now more than ever just because the internet offers us, you know, endless opportunities for education. Um, and because if you're lucky enough to be in the part of the world that allows it and that has the communities for it. You don't have to be a weirdo that's isolated at home. You can go to co-ops and meetups. I mean, we're out of the house every single day, you know, museums, mm-hmm. uh, the forest, um, different different classes that you can take. Um, so yeah, that's that's kind of, I, I forget if there were other questions you had and I'm not <laughs> So <answering> them. <laughs> that's okay. I gave you this sort of like package of questions. Yeah. Here's your, your, your question gift. There you go. Unwrap it. Um, no, but I'm just kind of curious about, you know, so it sounds like you, you had your education system and yeah, you, you mentioned Alfie Cohen, that's who we read in grad school. And, mm-hmm. and, and so when you, when your kids were little, I mean, was, was homeschooling a decision you made like when you were pregnant or when you were, you know, when they were small or, um, how did that decision come about? And and did your husband, did he think it was a good idea? I mean, obviously, but right. So we're still figuring it out. My kids are still very young. My eldest is in kindergarten, so it's not even officially considered homeschooling by many uh, Mm -hmm. right now, but I'm, I'm less concerned with the labels to be honest. Um, we still haven't officially made that choice, but uh, and it will and it will depend greatly on what the opportunities are around us. Like if there's a great alternative school that we connect to, then and that our kids are happy in, then great. Like I'm not against school per se, um, and there are plenty of different democratic schools and potentially Montessori schools that I think would really jive well with us. Um, but uh, my kids have been to different preschools and now they are in uh, currently they're in a program two days a week. Um, so we, you know, we dabble in school. Um, th- this actually happened last year. I was pregnant with my third and my boys went to just kind of a mainstream preschool in our neighborhood. And I, there were no other options. I was looking where we lived. There was no great alternative school and I was looking high and low. It just wasn't happening. So everyone was like, Oh, this is such a great school. Send your kids here. And and I did. And I knew I would have to overcome a lot of my, you know, hangups and fussiness. And I kind of was just telling myself, don't be so fussy. Just, you know, that they're kids at school, they're resilient. It's fine. Don't make such a big deal out of things. But eventually the accumulative effect of all the different things that weren't right for me led me to a real feeling of unease with that decision and I I had so much pressure on me like you can't pull them out of school and have them home because you won't find another spot for them this late in the year and you're going to have a baby and how are you going to manage you're in a two-bedroom apartment with three kids all day you're going to go stir crazy you know in the winter in New York it's cold you're going to you're going to be crazy it's it's not it's not possible 
And it took a good friend, uh, you know, we went out for coffee and we were supposed to talk about something completely different, but I just burst out crying. And I was like, I can't with the school. I'm so unhappy. I don't feel, I don't feel good sending them there. And she was like, just do what feels good to you. Just follow your gut. You can do this, whatever it is, you can do it. And I was so grateful just for that, you know, kind of obvious piece of advice, but you sometimes have to hear it from someone else. And that very day I picked them up and I was like, they're not coming back. There were a few, there were a few really like unpleasant events I have to say um <laughs> in the school uh oh, no. I was just like this can't be you know um and that was it and then they were home and I just you know I figured it out I got some help um and uh we played I got babysitter to come when I was doing my work uh when my husband comes home I'm like I see ya and I you know go off uh do my thing and he takes over so that I get some alone time um, and I also have to say that my kids go to bed early, so they're always asleep by seven, which means I ha- I really have an evening, uh, yeah, um, yeah, which also really helps. Oh, that's so essential. Oh my gosh. So that's, yeah, that's, yeah, <laughs> for me it is. Well, it's, it's interesting. I guess I, I think what I'm um, wondering about is like kind of I, what I think about what I, what I really see as sort of the problem. Um, and I guess that's kind of what I'm wondering too, from you, Abitel, is like, I want to talk about play and, and that, but I want to, I'm guessing what I'm wondering about when I'm asking you about this is like your philosophy about it in some way, because I think what I see as for me, the problem with, um, a lot of schooling out there is that the way we teach is we teach with extrinsic external rewards and really I believe that the way and in, in the way I teach parenting and mindful parenting and the way I believe that kids should learn in school also is about internal motivation in intrinsic motivation where they do the thing they learn the thing because they want to learn it like the a, a schooling that doesn't ever like squash that love of learning, you know, like, which mm-hmm. I feel like is really squashed by reward and punishment. And, and that intrinsic desire to have a good relationship is in also really, you know, in a family can also be really squashed by reward and punishment. And I guess, so I guess that's kind of where it all kind of boils down to for me is that external versus internal motivation, where I want my kids to really be internally motivated to learn. I don't want them to be motivated through character and stick. So I don't know. Um, so that's kind of personally where I personally really land on that. And so I guess I'm wondering from you, like, what, what is your philosophy about that? Where do, what does it boil down to you for you as far as what you're really wanting and what you're really not wanting for your kids? We are supported by Mysteries About True Histories, affectionately known as Math Mysteries About True Histories. It's a weekly show full of time travel puzzles, hidden equations, history, and lots of laughs. I highly recommend this podcast. It's really wonderful, especially if you have kids like around like six plus, but it can totally be enjoyed by the whole family. So I listened to the episode, The Pirate Queen, and you're just dropped right in the middle of the action. People are fighting. There's sword fight. And then these kids, they've gone on a time travel mission and they have to solve problems in the midst of it. And it really just like exemplifies everything we support here at Mindful Parenting. You know, kids who are adventurous, doing things on the world, they're capable. And then they do things like they have to do math, they have to think critically, they have to code break and pattern solving and all this great stuff. 
beyond just the Pirate Queen episode, which I highly recommend, episodes transport listeners to moments in history, too, like Pythagoras, Ancient Greece, the era of the Aztecs, Sir Isaac Newton's England, and more. So jump in with your family. Follow the adventures of Max and Molly on an adventure through time with puzzles and hidden equations and laughs. And it really does make learning really fun and really cool. Perfect for ages six and up. New episodes drop every Thursday, each stacked with so much laughter that your kiddos won't even realize how much they're learning. So tune into Mysteries About True Histories with your kids. And you can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. That's Mysteries About True Histories. I want to tell you about a great podcast that you should check out, especially if you ever deal with any school system, which you probably do. It's called Understood Explains. This season of the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert Juliana Ortube, and it's all about how to navigate individual education plans, also known as IEPs. And this season of Understood Explains covers topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP and busts common myths about special education. So I checked out the episode on the difference between IEPs and 504 plans because my daughter Maggie uses a 504 plan and it was really, really helpful. It went over all the differences, which one's better, how to get them, different myths and what your rights are, all kinds of different things that you should understand if your child may need extra help in education through an IEP or a 504 plan. The tone is super helpful, friendly, and smart. I highly recommend you check it out. To listen to Understood Explains, just search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's it. Understood Explains. Um, Yeah, so first of all, Hunter, I totally agree with you about the intrinsic motivations for everything. And 100% a school that deploys, you know, even grades, you know, that's already an extrinsic motivator. Um, And I I 100% agree with you. And I think that's, one major key for me and there are a couple at least of others and so one big one that I think about a lot is how we define success Mm. and I think that what happens in schools is sometimes there's a very narrow definition of success and it's usually academic success and then financial success which is seen as a derivative of academic success right you do well in school then you do well in college then you get a good job Mm-hmm. Now, those are fine goals, um, but to me, they're a very small part of, you know, leading a successful life. And I, you know, I I worry uh, about being an environment for so many hours a day that puts most of the emphasis on that, when especially in the early years, but really all through life, I think that success has to be seen in a far more holistic way you know, way. So I would like to know that the environment cares about, um, you know, am I, am I developing my character? Am I being kind? Am I being responsible? Am I being empathic towards others? Um, am I, uh, you know, developing my skills in many other areas other than academic skills? Can I uh, lead a life independently? You know, am I developing Mm -hmm. life skills? Am I developing relationship skills? Um, Am I, you know, you know, creativity as a huge, a huge um, chunk of what I think is necessary to lead a meaningful and successful life. So all of those kind of parts of of being a human, I think, aren't addressed by many major educational institutions. And I think it leaves us 
a bit amputated uh, from major parts of our of our joy and happiness in the future. I know that I went through the school system and I came out not knowing how to balance a basic budget, even though I had done you know higher level math. I didn't know how to balance a basic budget. I didn't know, you know, in, in I mean, in the life skill of going to the bank, opening an account, et cetera, et cetera. I didn't know uh, key relationship skills. You know, I didn't know how to be an active listener. I didn't know how to help someone when they were mourning. What do you say? I didn't know, you know, there were just so many things I can write you. I can fill whole libraries with things I didn't know that I think are much more important than the, you know, some of the history and geometry that I did learn. So that's one major key for me is how do we define success? I think that a big part of that that's related to that is competition. And I know that Montessori is all about a non-competitive environment, which is so important. Um, but I think that competition is is so deeply rooted in our culture and is such a major um, obstacle to to what I view as you know creating a successful and and healthy human environment of collaboration and cooperation, and um, so that's something that I you know I prefer to avoid at all at all costs. You know whether it's competitive sports, competitive schooling, I'd like my children to be in an environment where the winner is someone who's stopped to help other people, not got there first, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I love so the word you, you know, used. So that's... <laughs> Sorry, I totally interrupted you. No, go ahead, finish. <laughs> yeah, go for it. No. No, I'm just saying, I love, the, I love the word you used, amputated. I think that's, um, oh, that's such a, I get such a, a vision from that, you know? And I think that's so true. Like, it's it, it drives me crazy that there we're not taught like how to listen how I mean I you know that's part of like our huge huge part of the mindful parenting course is like learning these skillful communication things that we just aren't taught but are so essential yeah. to like living a happy healthy life like how to take care of your difficult feelings like uh, you know I mean mm-hmm. uh, and creativity of course like all those things you mentioned I I like nodding my head absolutely vigorously mm. while you're talking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, those are some schools we could get behind, right? Schools that really uh, care about those things. Um, and so, yeah. So the w- first thing you mentioned was intrinsic motivation. The second thing that I was speaking about was success. And I think the third thing that I would mention is standardization versus diversity. Um, you know, increasingly in all the books I read and the TED talks I watch and the podcasts I listen to, we 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 understand that human intelligence is diverse. This is something Ken Robinson really speaks to a lot. And that human experience is diverse, right? Our, our likes and dislikes, our preferences, our character. And there's something about the school education, you know, rooted in an industrial era that, you know, really um, highlights and um, sanctifies um, uh, conformity mm-hmm. and standardization. And we see that in the testing, we see that in the subject matter. Um, and, you know, it's, Peter Gray claims that schools that cater to unique individual pieces and interests don't cost any more money and in fact can be much more cost effective than the public school system we currently have. So the financial you know, argument is off the table. Um, and if it's off the table, then I just always come back to the question, well, why is everyone learning the exact same thing at the exact same pace? Why are all the five-year-olds doing the same and all the seven-year-olds? I'm not saying that we don't all have to have some basic skills, right? We all need to have 
reading and writing basic basic math skills um we all need to know some history there are there are some things that i definitely want my children to learn don't get me wrong it's not like oh i don't care if they're illiterate when they're 19 i do i care i care very much i just don't think that standardization serves anyone um mm. really uh not the strong kids who could be, you know, moving along in that subject matter and being being interested in something else and not the weak kids who need to go slower. And, you know, I, I'm loath to use the term strong and weak mm-hmm. because everyone is strong and weak in different areas. Right. I don't mean strong kids. I mean, strong in that particular area. So and then and then it comes back to me and you you know, doodling in class, right? Well, is graphic design any less illustrious and important a uh, career choice than uh, academia? Mm-hmm. Um, because our world cannot survive without a very wide range of skills. But, you know, it, it's like we're not learning those skills. Why can't I, I don't know how to fix my toilet, right? I didn't learn any plumbing skills, even though they'd have served me very well in my adult life. Um, whereas some of the skills I learned are really, I, I, I've literally forgotten them. Um, so that standardization piece is also important in my opinion. Oh, I think you've laid it out really well. I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't agree with you more. I'm totally nodding my head vigorously. I mean, yeah, like I didn't know how to, who, who does their own, you know, who does their own taxes? Like, why don't we just fill out like mock tax forms? <laughs> and, you know, it's like, some things are so obvious that it drives me bananas, mm-hmm. you know? And, um, and then that's that whole thing. Like, you know, we don't, all the five-year-olds doing the same thing. Like, you know, all kids don't learn to walk at the same time and you're not going to help a child learn to walk through special, you know, like classes to enhance and go, you know, like that's, um, that's something Montessori talks about is like those learning phases. Like you have these learning periods that you're just ready Mm -hmm. for certain things. And, oh my God, I could just go on and on about this. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It drives me crazy. Um, yeah, but it, it, you're right. It is also like a, a privileged conversation that we get to, you know, we have these choices. Yet at the same time, I feel like the more people who make choices and, and show these alternatives and like strengthen the alternatives, then, you know, here we, you know, we have these models like here in Delaware, the school that, um, I helped to to bring about is a a public school. It's a public charter Montessori school. So, and it's doing amazing. So, you know, we're, we're showing that these options are there. And I think the more we have the conversation about this, it it opens eyes and, you know, it, it helps to, to maybe ever subtly change that incredibly slow moving uh, ship of the (laughs) conventional education system. Very, very incrementally, maybe. Um, and I can, I can kind of hear through what you're saying, too, is that the idea of the creativity and play um, is, is that play, right? That, that idea of like learning, learning through play, like not discounting play, but, but learning through play and, and what, how important free play is. And, and I'd love to talk to you about that because I, um, I really made it a point to have my children have lots of time for free play, even though there were mm-hmm. many times where, you know, there were times where they'd say, I just want to, I don't know, do this or I'm bored. And I'd be like, something to do is right around the corner, mm-hmm. honey. Like you can, you know, and, and you wouldn't believe it. Like, so your kids are younger now, but like my girls are nine and six 
And Mm -hmm. the things they, the creative things they do, like I have never met such creative human beings in my life. Like they're amazing. Like yesterday they built this enormous teepee in the backyard with bamboo (laughs) in our backyard. And they like, they like sawed off the edges of the bit, you know, and everything. I mean, it's unbelievable. So tell me, tell me about, um, the, tell the listener about the importance of, free play and and how and why is it challenged right now why do we even have to defend it yeah um yeah wow so this is a topic I'm super passionate about and I I 100% agree with you um children are incredibly creative Picasso said that every child is an artist um and and it's actually you know I'm not going to quote each and every piece of research but almost everything here has been empirically researched at how, you know, going through the school system, children will start off with a certain level of creativity. So when they're given like sentences to complete or drawings to to guess what a drawing might be, they have a very wide and open creative um, range of ideas. And then they're slow, it's slowly knocked out of them as they go through the system, learning that there's only one right answer and learning that the stakes are very high if you get the answer wrong. So you shouldn't you know, you shouldn't try a a new approach or a different idea because your teacher will not approve of that or or it won't be the correct answer on the test. So we see that the actual, those systems actually knock creativity out of children. Um, But coming back to play, I think um, play is so deeply misunderstood. Uh, I definitely misunderstood it. We have this, um, even just our language around play um, separates play from learning and separates play from work. Um, And I think that meaningful work and meaningful learning don't happen for children or for adults without play. Um, And, you know, to me, play is that state of flow. Um, It's a state of creativity where um, we're allowed to apply our imaginations and what's in our inner worlds um, in the outer world. We're allowed to bring that forth uh, so things that we might, you know, conjure up in our mind's eye, um, we we bring to fruition. And you see that in creative arts, obviously, right? Someone coming up with a dance or with a, a movie or with a piece of art. Um, but children are doing that all the time, right? They're, they're telling narratives, they're, cu- they're building worlds, they're creating um, entire universes through play, whether it's dramatic play, dressing up and acting out, or it's constructive play, they're building something out of Lego or out of blocks, um, whatever, or, you know, art, sensory exploration, whatever it is, they're exploring, they're investigating, they're um, practicing science, they're practicing logic, they're practicing um uh, lit- you know, literature in the sense that they're creating narratives um, and telling stories. So all of that is happening in a natural way through play. And unfortunately, because of the standardization movement and because of um, because of many different things that have led us to view learning as something that you can and should uh, quantify and measure, um, we've we've eclipsed this vital, 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 perhaps the only true way that people learn um, through self-motivated play. You know, you can you can teach a child something, you can force them to do well on a test, um, but you can't force them to internalize it. You can't force them to make it their own uh, and to know it. 
you know, that they, they can forget it the next day. But if a child is in, initiating it themselves or, or an adult, you know, I think all of this applies to our own work as well. Um, if the, the exploration is, is motivated intrinsically and is, and is explored freely without without the punishment and reward without the expectation of someone else then it's it's truly theirs they own it and they and they and and we tend to underestimate children we tend to underestimate just how how far and how incredibly they can create and they can learn um you know so i think that when we actually take off i call it taking off the leash uh you know like when you're walking a dog and you hold the leash he's he's pulling you you're pulling him he stops you stop you're at you're at the wrong pace you're not going at the right when you take off the leash um suddenly you guys can get into a dance right the dog goes forward at his own pace then he stops and you can carry on at your pace and you kind of meet and separate in this dance um, and i think that's what happens when we allow children to play they go off into their own worlds. They express their their own their needs, and they're so accurate. They are so accurate with their play. They will play the exact things that they need to learn and that they need to work on. Right? Like they've had some kind of trauma or some kind of concern or some kind of jealousy, or they're struggling with a certain area, or they're trying to master a concept. And it's exactly as you said when babies start to learn to walk. I mean, show me the healthy, normal baby who's reaching that stage of being interested to walk, who isn't practicing, who isn't getting up and trying again, who isn't cruising, who isn't testing themselves on the carpet, on the floor, on the steps, on the outside gravel, right? They they are thirsty um, and, and more motivated than anyone I've ever seen to master that skill in their own time, at their own pace, when they're ready. And I think that's true of every single skill. Um, if the environment supports it, that will happen. But it has to happen through play, in in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely see that. I mean, my you know my daughter Sora, she could cr- crawl, she could climb before she could walk. Actually, like she's you know mm-hmm. she actually climbed up the ladder at the playground before she could walk to the ladder, and you know <laughs> it was like pretty impressive. And you kind of see this sort of playing out through her life, but. Um, I think yeah. it's interesting. One one thing that makes me think of, like thinking about the importance of this and sort of why we have trouble with this is I think there's a lot of maybe fear and anxiety in parents and in, you know, um, in maybe, you know, in people who are listening. Like, I think there's a lot of fear and anxiety about um, being able to trust that, mm. being able to mm-hmm. trust um, that our children are gonna do the right things to, to get what they Mm -hmm. need to do to get what they learn. Like, I think there's a lot of, um, there, there's a lot of distrust that, that everything will be okay. And and a lot of like inner anxiety that maybe is provoked by culture, by upbringing and things like that, that if we are not telling them what to do, that how can we trust our kids in that way? Do you see that? Oh, for sure. And that, that, that comes up in me often, you know, like I, I feel this pressure, even though I'm so against early academic pressure and I'm so against teaching kids to read before they're ready and all of that stuff. I feel this kind of pressure, all these eyes on me, you know, oh, you're, you're, first of all, I speak publicly about parenting and I'm, you know, doing this kind of mishmash of unschooling and alternative schools. And, 
I, I kind of feel this need to prove, oh, look, my child can read, you know, mm-hmm. uh, even though he's only five. And I don't think there's any necessary um, reason to, to teach kids to read that early. But anyway, I'm just saying I totally experienced that fear. Um, and I think it comes down to a very controlling message that we all get, you know, control your children. Mm. I've been told that explicitly, <laughs> control your children, um, as if that was possible or, or, um, desirable. Um, you know, and I, Dr. Shafali Tabari talks a lot about control and about how, um, it's such a myth. It's a complete myth to even think that we have control over anything other than our own minds. And even, and even that we don't we have control over <laughs> Um, so I, I think, you know, I, I'm on a mission to dispel that fear and that guilt. Um, uh, Dr. Carla Nornberg, um, who I know you're close with talks about that myth that what we do as parents is going to determine how our children, um, come out as if they're some project of ours. Um, and Alison Gopnik in her book, The Gardener and the Carpenter, also uh, the carpenter, carpenter and the gardener, maybe it is, um, also talks about it beautifully, about how parenting has only recently become a verb. You know, it used to be mm. a noun to be a parent, like to be a friend and to be a wife and to be a husband. You're not wifing, right? <laughs> You're just a wife. Um, and she talks about just be a parent. Don't parent actively. Just be a parent, um, you know. And I, I love that because it reminds me that you know, I'm not supposed to shape them. I'm not supposed to mold them. They are who they are. Lynn, this time of year, parenting can be such a fluster clucks. You've come to the right place. I'm Lynn Lyons, and I've been treating anxious families for over 30 years. I'm Lynn's sister-in-law and co-host Robin Hudson. Join us for Fluster Clucks, a podcast for parents who worry. Wait, that's everybody. Yeah, these last few years have felt like one long anxiety attack for so many. Why do you think parents are always surprised that a podcast about anxiety relates to them, even if no one in their house has an anxiety disorder? Well, worry is human. Everyone does it. And anxiety shows up when we face uncertainty. All the parenting tips you've taught me have been essential. I love to break it down into skills we need to manage worry in our families. We've covered so many topics, depression, burnout, meltdowns, perfectionism. Don't forget scary mothers-in-law. Right, but of course that's not my mother-in-law. Because that's my mother. And a listener. As a psychotherapist, I like to teach parents and kids how to respond to everyday moments in healthy ways. Managing anxiety really can be taught. It really can. And I'll even tell you what to say. We talk about serious stuff, but without being too serious. Anxiety wants everything serious. Anxiety doesn't stand a chance when we're laughing, even about the tough stuff. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. 
I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. The only thing I have control over is me and maybe our environment. I can control a little bit. Um, I can make those choices, but I don't need to shape my child. And that element that you said about trust, that's just so huge. You know, that's a mantra of mine that I keep having to bring myself back to, you know, just trust, 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 and trust as a way of allowing things to actually develop. You know, if you, one of the things that I learned from Rye, um, from Janet Lansbury and Rye was not to push babies to walk or sit up before they're ready, right? Not to prop them up, not to hold their hands and make them walk unless they were initiating that themselves. And I, I think that just applies to everything. You know, we can inspire, um, we can model, um, we can, you know, spark play, I call it, like prompt. We can, you know, prompt by by creating an environment that induces a certain type of behavior or a certain type of play. Um, but you know, we don't need, we're not, we're not carpenters. We're not making a piece of furniture. Uh, we're more like gardeners. That's what Alison Gopnik teaches. Mm. You know, you, you tend to the soil, tend to the nutrients, make sure there's water, make sure there's sun and then let the plant grow. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I, I absolutely agree. I mean, we, and, and back to what Shafali Sabari said, I think she, I, I saw her speak and she said, you know, we need to love our children, but care about them less. Like love them a bit less, like, which is just a way of jolting us out of this mode of like, oh, we have to just be in there, like doing, you know, doing everything and controlling everything. And, and, you know, no, we're in a relationship with these people, you know, where they are, they are their own people too. And it's funny because I often think like when my oldest daughter was born, I remember having this experience of like, holy shit, like there were four people in this room and now there are five whole people in this room. Like there is a whole other person here. Like she is just as her whole own being. And it was just blew my mind. Right. And, um, yeah. you know, at first I was like, Oh, thank God it's over. And then yes, there's this other yeah. person here. And, and, uh, but it's interesting because I think over time, as she became a toddler, like some of that feeling wore off where I got um, sucked into the culture of like my child should be like this and should be like that and that fear and anxiety. And I didn't even see her as this whole other person. And I think a lot of the way sometimes we approach our children is just not even seeing them as whole people yet. I don't know. Yeah, um, it's yeah. very hard because they, you know, we are conditioned to believe that they're a reflection of us and that their behavior, you know, is a, is a reflection of our parenting um, and that their achievements, uh, you know, we live vicariously through so many things about our children, their appearance, their achievements, their choices, their behavior. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's almost impossible to divorce from that. It's, I think it's so deeply culturally rooted um, in that, you know, that we can somehow be proud of them or ashamed of them. 
uh, embarrassed by them, all of these things because they are ours, right? All this language is all the language of ownership. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that's our shit. Which, that's okay, our stuff. That's fine, you know? <laughs> right. Oh, I, I, that's part of it. But we, yeah, we've got a, um, it's so hard. It is so hard. I know. I, I get triggered, deeply triggered, deeply triggered by so many things that my son might do because I feel like it reflects badly on me. Um, or this isn't how I, you know, how I envisioned him to be. Um, but that's my work. That's, that is my work of letting go. Yeah. 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 So, uh, so how can we, I want to, I wanted to talk to you about play and we get, I get so passionate about all these things, but how can we, what are some things we can do? Um, uh, you know, you especially have, uh, you know, young kids, how can we make the environment more conducive to giving kids that time for unstructured play and, and how can we make their intern you know, interior environment, like their home environment, more conducive yeah. for that. Yeah. Um, okay. So this is something that I, I mean, I, um, I talk about extensively, but, um, I'll just bring a few ideas here because it's a, it's a very deep topic. Um, but so first of all, I think the, the number one thing, uh, to do is to simplify the environment. Um, culturally we're told more is more, uh, that your child needs this toy or that toy to learn, to become the next Einstein, you know, they'll love it. It will keep them busy. We're promised all these different promises. I just recommend that we all exercise extreme suspicion when it comes to purchasing toys. Um, and that we remember that, uh, throughout history, kids have maybe had, you know, one or two toys or just nature, you know, sticks, stones, pebbles, water um, to play with. And in many parts of the world, that's still the case. And it actually serves them better than more toys. So simplifying and less is more uh, when it comes to toys, I think, is 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 a very important one, um, primarily because overstimulation is worse than understimulation, in my opinion. Um, when we you know, you can imagine, I, I like to use the analogy of arriving to work and you come to your desk and suddenly you have seven computers and six printers and four phones and three microphones and you have all this gear cluttering up your desk and now you're supposed to work. Um, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> you can't, you know, you can't focus. You're like, oh, I just got so much stuff. I don't even know how to use these. I don't know how to start. Right. And I just think for kids, give them a clear desk, let them do the work. Don't worry so much about the tools. Um, so that's, that's the first. And then when you're looking at toys, I would say it's always better to err on the side of simple and open-ended because we really want to activate our children's imagination and not uh, the toy company's imagination. So, um, you know, every single movie that comes out by Disney or Pixar or Nickelodeon has a bazillion different gadgets and toys and characters and books and t-shirts and cups and um, plastered all over it. So we've got to just be mindful of the advertising power that's going into our playrooms. And then many of the toys promise to do things for our children. This will fly and you press buttons and then it sings and then it dances and it flashes lights. And it's all fun and games, but really we want our children to be the ones imagining. And the way that they do that best is with, you know, simple set of blocks, simple set of Lego, um, simple characters, right? We just need to remember that the objects and items in our home have an energetic value. And I don't mean that in the spiritual sense, although that too, I mean that, literally uh, we are affected by their form and um, they they are instructions in a way okay so think of toys as instructions for play uh if you give your children you know 
TV show toys, that's the type of play you can imagine. Uh, they will, you know, um, they will um, sink into. And if you give your children toys that play for them, uh, then they are learning they don't need to play. Uh, they just need to be passively entertained. So that's the second thing is really going for open-ended materials. You know, I would say that art supplies are more important than toys because children make their own toys. Children make their own, you know, drawings and puppets and characters. If you give them clay, if you give them Play-Doh, it's so much more interesting than something that a, a company has pre-designed for them. Um, and then thirdly, I would just notice um, about your own role in play. I think that another message that we get is that we need to talk to babies, we need to entertain them, we need to develop them. If they're not reaching the rattle, we should reach the rattle for them and rattle it in their face and teach them and show them. Well, real research by Alison Gopnik shows that kids actually learn much better and much more when they're allowed to explore things on their own. So just an anecdote from her research, which is fascinating. When an adult shows a kid a toy with a bunch of different levers and buttons and says, this is how the toy works and presses the button for them, then the kid is likely to repeat that action. But when she just kind of uses that in front of the child and the child witnesses her using the toy, even if she only uses it in one way, but she wasn't instructive in how to use it, then the kid is going to explore all the other ways of using that toy as well. Mm. So we have to be very, very careful because we can actually teach children out of play. You know, our instructions can actually inhibit and infringe on their curiosity and their self-motivation. So I like to, to think of my role as a parent, as an assistant to the director. So my children are the directors of the show. I do not get involved in their play unless absolutely necessary. And what I mean by necessary is they can't open the bag or they can't, you know, they need technical help reaching a toy or setting something up. Beyond that, I really see myself as a behind the scenes assistant, just there to minimalistically support their play um, and not, not direct it, not get in the driver's seat. That is great. Uh, thank you so much for that, Avital. And I absolutely, um, I absolutely recommend all those things. They're that's wonderful, and and that's a lot of what we did when my girls were little. And um, and we're going to be having, we have some um, some modules in the mindful parenting course about simplifying and and things like that. And now we're going to have some nice bonuses from Avital about play too in the mindful parenting course. Um, so I'm so thrilled, thrilled about that. And, and those, and I, I can tell you as I'm now the parent of a, you know, a nine-year-old and a six-year-old that yeah, it's interesting. Like at first when you simplify and you, you know, you think, oh my God, they're going to freak out. And every time I've simplified my kids stuff, they've been like, thank you. My room is decluttered. It's so nice. I really love it. Like they're so thrilled and they do, they do create their own stuff. Like it's really like, I was like, what these silk scarves and the natural catalog, like whatever, you know? And then we made our own silk scarves. And I have to say, silk scarves are like scarves in general like a, just a <laughs> bucket of scarves is like an awesome it's just so awesome I mean every parent needs a bucket of scarves because they become everything it's it's wonderful to watch I just love love watching that yeah 
Amazing. I so agree. (laughs) Awesome. Well, so thank you so much, Avital, for coming on the podcast. I love uh, talking to you. Obviously, we have a a lot in common and and I love, I want to direct people over to your videos, your YouTube channel. So where can people find you? Um, At theparentingjunkie.com. Awesome. Awesome. And uh, like I said, Avital will have um, some work in the Mindful Parenting course, so you can look forward to that as well. Um, thank you so I'm much for coming. I'm super excited for that. Yay! I'm thank so- you, Hunter. This was so much fun. It's so great talking to you, and I can't wait to have you on The Parenting Junkie. Woohoo! I'm looking forward to it. All right. Thank you so much for listening to the Mindful Mama podcast. I loved talking to Avitel. I could have talked to her for hours about this stuff. Finally, a big thank you to you for listening and a big thank you to William Fields for the music. So sending you lots of love, my friend. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great week. Namaste. When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play. And we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips.